If you are willing and able in the room, uh, if you would stand this morning out of respect for God's words for us, uh, you can follow along on the screens as I read our scripture passage on which our sermon is based today. You can follow along as I read from the Gospel of John. Friends, these words are utterly true and they're given to us in love. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for it was, uh, he was stripped from work and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to say hi uh, to everyone here on campus, those joining us online. Great to be together for worship this Sunday. Uh, if you are new with us today, I am really glad you're here. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors. And we are in a series called Undeniable Witness, where we're looking at various encounters uh, people had with Jesus after his resurrection. Uh, today, we find ourselves by the Sea of Galilee, uh, what's called in our passage, the Sea of Tiberias. And you should be thinking in your mind more of a lake than a sea. It's a, it's a very small body of water. And we are encountering in the person of Peter something that we all know only too well. We're encountering regret. The regrets of mistakes made, of things said, of things left undone. And we are not alone in our regret. Most of us know this feeling of what we carry from the past. One extremely popular radio program, uh, podcast, you may have listened to it, called This American Life. Uh, the host, his name is Ira Glass. Uh, he's hosted it for years. And he speaks to what we all know and feel, this nagging sense of regret that we carry. He says this. Some regrets just never go away. People tell us that they forgive us. We try to forgive ourselves. And we still know we did wrong. We hurt somebody. It was real. And that feeling, it can immobilize you. 
If you're lucky, it teaches you something that you take into other situations. But I think often it's just like this pebble in your shoe that teaches you nothing. It doesn't slow you down, really. It just hurts. It just hurts in this way that does not stop hurting. Now, Ira Glass goes on in this radio program to comment on the one person he knew of. There's at least one person who, who had some regrets, but they carried on with life uh, as usual, that they had a few regrets in life, but they, they looked at those regrets and they were able to, to get past them. That one person that he spoke to, you're, you're probably already thinking of the same person. It's Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra in his song, My Way, he said this, regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention, too few to mention. But Ira Glass commenting on this rebukes the great Sinatra. This is what he said. Oh, really? Too few to mention. Not me, buddy. Not most people. If you don't have regrets, it means you haven't screwed up. It means you haven't had your heart broken. It means you haven't been bloodied. It means you haven't failed. Now, whatever you think of Ira Glass, I'm not asking you to make an an opinion on him today, but can we at least name that he speaks to what we all know and feel inside? These regrets that we see when we look in the rear view mirror of our lives, things that, gosh, if we could just go back, if we could just change, if we could, if we could just have another chance at that, the, the things that we would do differently, the, the words that we would take back, the things that we did, we've all been there. We all know that sense of regret, but how, how do we make sense of our regrets and they don't become the pebble and the shoe? As Ira Glass put it, how, how do we get to a place with our regrets where they can teach us while at the same time, they're no longer inflicting the pain of shame. Three things from our passage. We will see from the life of Peter first, getting honest about life. Second, noticing where we have turned and third, finding what we truly need finding what we truly need. Let's look first at getting honest about life. And we see in our situation in this passage, uh, the crescendo moment, the, the climactic moment around that moment in the Sea of Galilee, right there in verse 17, this is what it says. Jesus said to Peter the third time, the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Uh, This passage is painful to read and and even more painful and more awkward if you imagine yourself around the fire that day. You see, Jesus has to do some psychological work on Peter and Jesus holds no punches back. I mean, he he, he doesn't avoid the issue. He he doesn't dance around the situation. In fact, Jesus reenacts Peter's most deepest regret. Maybe you don't see it yet, but let me explain. Our passage tells us that Jesus started a fire. Now you may be thinking, why why did he start this fire? He he probably started a fire uh, because he was cold. It's it's an early morning right there in that climate around Jerusalem and Israel. Of course, it's probably cold. He started a fire because of that reason. Or or you're thinking, oh, he started this fire uh, because they're cooking fish. That's what it says in our passage. They're cooking fish. But you can tell this fire has a deeper meaning. This fire has a deeper purpose. It's a reenactment of the scene of Peter's greatest regret. This is what we read in Luke 22. 
Then they seized Jesus and they led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Peter sat down by a fire. And what happened around that fire would mark Peter's life. He he would walk with a limp in his soul as he moved forward, as he looked back in the rearview mirror of his regrets. A pebble in the shoe as he recalls that scene, the despair that that filled Peter's heart, the, the anxiety that he felt in his throat. Peter remembers all too well what happened around that fire. Because he has replayed that scene over and over and over and over in his head. Saying to himself, if only I could go back. If if, if only I could do things again. If only I could rewind the tape. Peter is hoping he has misunderstood. (laughs) Peter's hoping he's misinterpreted this fire scene at the Sea of Galilee. That Jesus is just here. Uh, he started this fire uh, to make some food for them. He's, he started this fire because it's cold outside. That's what he's hoping. He, Jesus isn't, Jesus isn't going to bring up what I think he's going to bring up. But Peter knows Jesus loves him too much to not get honest. <laughs> he knows Jesus loves him too much not to have the conversation. This is why in our passage, Jesus asks Peter three times, Simon Peter, do you love me? By the time he got to the third repeated question, Peter knew. He knew what that fire meant and why it's there. And he knew why three questions were being asked. Those three questions were reminding him of another fire where he had denied Jesus three times. He had denied he ever knew him, denied he had any affiliation with Jesus. And this is why it tells us in verse 17 of our passage that Peter was grieved. He was grieved. This this moment of grief of his regrets. In that moment, he, he was reliving the scene. His scene around that first fire where he had denied him. Because around that fire, Peter and Jesus had locked eyes. You may, you may not remember that, but there was a moment as he denied Jesus three times, Jesus and Peter locked eyes. This is what it says in Luke 22. And Peter said, man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the saying, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Peter and Jesus, they, they lock eyes and Peter has relived the that moment that of Jesus's face in that encounter where he denied him. He's, he's relived that moment in his life by that fire. And Peter is grieved by the pain he has caused. And we have to get honest about our own life. And there, there are two ways we, we, we don't truly deal with the pebble in our shoe, as Ira Glass put it, that, that we don't truly deal with it. And the first is we undervalue our regrets. And what do I mean? Rather than getting honest, what we do, and this is the human issue. This is the issue that goes back to the dawn of time. We blame others for our mistakes. Uh, we, we look at our faults as simply the byproduct of someone else's issues. Uh, they, they made me do this. 
Now, please don't misunderstand me. There are things that have happened to us. There are traumas that we have experienced at the hands of others that should not be overlooked. I want to make light of that. There are wrongs of injustice that we have carried in the marrow of our bones. And I do not want you to misunderstand me the importance of those. But, But what I'm talking about today is our innate ability to blame others for our errors or mistakes. The first century Roman historian Titus Livius, he said this, men are only clever at shifting blame from their own shoulders to those of others. Uh, This is the story of our lives. In fact, it is the story of the human condition, this this innate ability that we have since the dawn of time. I mean, we, we go back to the scene in Genesis 3, the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, God comes to Adam and he says to Adam, uh, Adam, why did you do it? Why, why did you disobey me? Why'd you disobey me? And what's Adam's response? That woman, that woman you gave me, she's the issue. She. God turns to Eve. He says, Eve, what happened? What, what, what do you have to say about this? Eve's response, remember? That serpent. That serpent made me, made me do it. I mean, imagine the scene in the garden. I mean, everyone's arms are, are probably getting very tired at this point because they, they've been pointing fingers for so long. It's, their arms had to be tired. Uh, in our family, we, we see this all the time. I hear a giant commotion in the other room. I, I run in. There's a, there's a lamp that is broken that's been knocked over. And, and, I, and I start my, my interrogation as any parent does, but that parents, you know that it's not going anywhere when you ask who did it. She pushed, she put, he did it. She pushed me. I mean, it feels at times like you're trying to pin the mafia down to a crime. We live in these moments where we undervalue our regrets. We have this, this moment this morning where we have the opportunity to get honest with our lives that we have been clever at shifting the blame of pointing the finger at others. And today, maybe it's the first time that you actually would get honest with that. No more blaming, no more accusing, but like Peter, just coming to grips with what has happened. The second way we don't deal with the pebble in the shoe is that we overvalue our regrets. Now, what do I mean by that? We operate many times, we operate as judge, jury, and above all, executioner of our own souls. Uh, We believe uh, that because of our regrets, because of what we've done, we are public enemy, number one. We we say to ourselves in our head, no one has ever done what I have done. No, No one has ever thought what I have thought. And what we can miss is that Peter was out there with these other disciples fishing. Uh, these, these other disciples who, just like Peter, uh, walked away from Jesus when times got tough. Walked away, abandoned Jesus. They, they turned and ran as things got tough. But it's easy for Peter to believe it is just him. Even though they're there around that fire. So what we do sometimes is we, we, we take our regrets to a place in our head where we say, I am beyond repair. I'm beyond hope. Uh, what I did when I look in the rearview mirror, what I did, no, no one can forgive that. I read a story uh, about a student who was studying at Oxford University. 
And he was teaching in the student chapel uh, to other students and leaders of that ministry. And he asked during his teaching, uh, would you raise your hand in the room if you think you are, quote, the worst Christian in the room? Raise your hand if you believe you are the worst Christian in the room. And this is how he responded to that moment. He said this, quote, there I was looking at a room full of some of the most spiritual people I've ever met. And guess what? Every single person in the room raised their hand. We can, believe, we can begin to believe the lie that we are the worst. Uh, that when we look at our regrets, our mistakes, when we, when, we, when we begin to assess the pebble in the shoe, that we begin to say, I'm beyond hope. There's no hope for me. That we say, God might forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. We, 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 we undervalue our regrets and we overvalue our regrets. We, we, we blame others for our, our issues or we get to a place where we believe we are the only one with issues. But getting honest about our life and about what has happened means acknowledging our shortcomings rather than pointing the finger at others and blaming them. And at the same time, acknowledging there are other people around that fire. Other people who have the same regrets, other people going through the same issues. But we have to get honest. We have to get honest. We have to deal with the pebble in the shoe. Or else we will find that we will turn to other places trying to solve the issue. That's our second thing we must see. This morning, we have to notice where we have turned. Notice where we've turned. Look at our passage, verse 15. This is what it says. When they had finished breakfast... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Jesus asked Peter a very important question. Do you love me more than these? It's an important question, and much ink has been spilt through history trying to answer that question. What is Jesus talking about there? What is the these in this passage? Some people uh, believe that what he's referring to is the others uh, around the fire. It, 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 do you love me more than these disciples? Uh, that's one interpretation. Other interpretation, I'm more inclined to the second one in light of the context, is that Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me more than these fish? Do you, do you love me more than these fish? The, this giant haul <laughs> that they've just brought in. Do you love me more than these you have to remember they've gone fishing, but unlike my usual fishing expeditions, they actually caught fish and they actually caught a lot of fish, 153 of them to be exact. It was quite the day of fishing and they've just hauled them all to shore. And some of them they're actually having as part of this intimate breakfast with Jesus. But Jesus asked a very penetrating question. Do you love me more than these? There's so much happening in that one question, and it speaks to what we all feel and know. What happens in our lives is that our regrets shape us, and we try to solve the issue in our own strength. This is what I regress is getting at from the quote earlier. We, we, don't, we don't stop to address the pebble in the shoe. This is, this is Peter's story, and this is our story this morning. We have to notice where we have turned. Peter has turned to what he knows, to fishing, to the great catch. And what sometimes we do, rather than addressing our regrets, rather than dealing with them, we, we plunge ourselves into an identity that we believe can quiet the regret. 
We, we plunge ourselves into, into, into a way of life, into an identity that will, will, will soften the regret or quiet the voice of that regret that continues to speak over our life. We will find we long for something that will give us approval or give us control or give us power, maybe success. Now, it may not be fishing for you, but it could be your career, especially in our modern world that we live in, um, that, that our work, while wonderful in all the ways that it provides for our life, it becomes a form of salvation. And now the second I say work and salvation together, you may bristle at that, but uh, this is actually what Derek Thompson has talked about in an article he did a couple years ago in the Atlantic magazine about work. And it, what he says is we are looking for salvation in what he calls workism. He says college educated career elites, um, th- their work has morphed into a religious identity. Thompson quotes actually a 1930s essay uh, by a man named J. Maynard Kays called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. Kays is looking out uh, on on the future, and this is his assessment, his prophetic voice of the future from 1930. And uh, Kays was saying he was predicting by the 21st century where we find ourselves today uh, with all the technological advancements that you and I, yes, you and I, would have a 15-hour work week, one five-hour work week. And this is what he said. For the first time since his creation, man will be faced with his real, his permanent problem, how to use his freedom from pressing economic cares, how to occupy the leisure, which science and compound interest will have won for him, to live wisely and agreeable and well. This was, this was his assessment from 1930. Case's thought saying by 2021, your major problem in life, your major problem, my major problem in life is going to be, what do we do with our leisure time? We have so much time on our hands. What do I do with all of this time I have now? Now, I think I can speak for most of us that our work has not decreased since 1930, but has most likely increased since 1930. That the technology that was meant to decrease the hours in the office has only made it available for the office to come home with us. But we can't blame technology. We have to acknowledge, as Derek Thompson does in this article, that we have a gospel of work. He uses those words, gospel of work. We are looking for salvation. Jesus could be pointing to your work, your work around that charcoal fire. Do, Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And maybe it isn't work for you, but it's your looks. Uh, the Kardashians were in the news media loop again. And the second I say Kardashians, some of you are going to roll your eyes and that's okay. And um, it will be over this point in just a minute. And if you're here and you have no idea what the Kardashians are, just count it a blessing. Your life is better uh, because you don't. Uh, but the Kardashians were in the news again. Uh, there was an article put out by BBC News uh, maybe you saw this, how Khloe Kardashian had posted a photo on Instagram that was not edited or filtered. She, she posted a photo just out there, no editing, no filtering, and she was ridiculed. Uh, she was shamed. She was criticized for her body. Uh, the shame was so bad, she was forced to pull out every legal stop she could to get the picture removed from the internet. How, wherever it's posted, how do I get that picture removed 
from the internet. And this is what she said after this situation. In truth, the pressure, constant ridicule, and judgment my entire life to be perfect and to meet others' standards of how I should look has been too much to bear. The constant need to be perfect, to meet a standard. We, we all feel that inside, that, that gap uh, between the person we are and the person we long to be. What one author calls having enoughness. How, how, how do I have enoughness? And friends, we've, we've plunged ourselves into something to save us. Something, something that is a love above every other love in your life. What is that for you? It usually is something very good, by the way. It's usually something very good that has become ultimate. We can't live without these. Do you love me more than, than these? It's whatever you're looking to for meaning to tell you you are enough. It could be your bank account bottom line. It could be your name on the wall in the office. It could be getting two sizes smaller. It could be getting a scholarship to the college of your dreams. But what we have to see in our passage and in the life of Peter is that whatever we pursue, we're pursuing those loves to cover our regrets, to cover our shame. We all have something that, that Jesus has laid before the fire. And he's asking you this morning, do you love me more than these? And whatever it is for you, whatever that is around that charcoal fire, it will never be enough. This is what the author David Brooks calls the moral peril of meritocracy. Nothing is ever enough to solve the problem. It's like the fig leaves in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve look back on their life in the rearview mirror and they see the regrets from their past, the shame of what they're carrying. And what do they do? They form fig leaves. They, they, they form something to cover them, something to save them. And we are all looking for that. I don't know uh, if you keep up with late night uh, TV, late night uh, television shows. Uh, they, uh, 10 years ago, uh, you know, the, the lots changed over the last few years, but it used to be Leno and Letterman. If you remember those days, Leno and Letterman uh, and uh, the David Letterman, he knew this life of the fig leaves. Uh, Letterman knew that whatever you are chasing, it will never be enough. And listen to his assessment. This is what he said about life in late night. Every night you're trying to prove your self-worth. It's like meeting your girlfriend's family for the first time. You want to be the best, wittiest, most charming, best smelling version. Women, yeah, that's a problem for us men. The best, how can we, how can we be the best smelling version of ourselves? If I can make people enjoy the experience and have a higher regard for me when I am finished, it makes me feel like I'm an entire person. If I come up short of that, I am not happy. How things go for me every night is how I will feel about myself for the next 24 hours. In the house of meritocracy, rent is due at the end of every day. And we cannot pay up. We try to balance the scales, asking how, have I done enough? Have I earned enough? We have to notice where we have turned we have turned to deal with our regrets, but where we've turned will not satisfy. There is nothing enough. It cannot do the job. And Jesus in his kindness 
invites us to, to repent from where we have turned. Where have we looked? He's asking you a simple question this morning. Do you love me more than these? What is that for you? Where have you turned, but you find that you keep falling short? You keep searching for something to fill the void, but you keep falling short. Or on the other end, you're like Letterman. You're clawing, clawing to hang on. Where are you looking to balance the scales? But at the end of the day, you realize once again, it does not solve the problem. Repentance is just a biblical word that means to turn. We have to turn from whatever we have turned to. But where could we possibly turn that allows us to be honest about our regrets and at the same time doesn't inflict more judgment on us? Where can we turn that we have to have an honest place that we deal with our regrets. We look in the mirror, we name them, but at the same time, we don't find another place that inflicts more shame, more guilt, more judgment on us. Another place where we need to pay rent at the end of the day. Where do we turn? Well, that brings us to our third point, finding what we truly need. In our passage in John, you may have missed it. You may have missed it. It was right at the end, right at the end. It's a little cryptic for us, but we'll, we'll dive into it. But you might've missed it. Listen at the end of verse 17. Listen to Jesus as he speaks to Peter. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter has just confessed with full honesty, his regrets, the mistakes he has made. Um, he, he tells us in this passage, he is grieved as he recalls his regrets, his failures, his mistakes his insecurities of how he has truly and utterly blown it in life. And on the other side of those regrets, there stands Jesus declaring these amazing words to him and to you and to me this morning, feed my sheep. It may not seem like much to you, but these three words are the message of the gospel. They are the words Peter needed above anything else in his life. The good news of grace for the regrets that seem they are too much at times for us to carry. The regrets that can sometimes paralyze us, but God declares to us and to Peter right in the middle of those regrets, there is a word of grace for you that the enoughness we are looking for in a thousand other places is available. And God through Jesus is ready and willing to give you the grace that you truly need. The author and psychiatrist who I love, Kurt Thompson Uh, shared this amazing line in one of his books. And this line continues to haunt me. And I think it will haunt you as well in the best possible sense. He said this, we are all are born into the world looking for someone looking for us. We are all born into a world looking for someone looking for us. Friends, there is a one-way love that comes to us in the person of Jesus. This this love that, that meets us not only in our very best of times, but meets us in our very worst, at our lowest moments, at our deepest regrets and failures and mistakes. He has seen it all. He knows all. And even in that moment, he says to Peter and he says to you today, feed my sheep. I will never let you go. I will never forsake you as hard as you try. I don't know if you ever saw the 1991 movie, The Fisher King. It it was up for a lot of Oscars that year. Uh, It tells the story of a homeless man played by Robin Williams. 
and Robin Williams has been watching this very, very klutzy girl for weeks. Um, he, he's sort of in love with her. Uh, he's been watching her. Uh, he sees that she's a klutz. He sees that she's clumsy. He sees that she's incredibly awkward. He sees that um, she has absolutely no friends. Uh, you may remember this if you've seen the movie. And Jeff Bridges, uh, his friend, Robin Williams' friend in the movie, uh, helps him get cleaned up. Remember, Williams is homeless. And he fixes him up so he can get a date with this girl. And uh, they, they go out for dinner. And it's, it's, a, it's a comedy at this point. It's a, so there's a lot of mishaps. You know, th- you know things, aren't going, things aren't going well. Um, and then he's bringing her back to her apartment. And she says this. Well, I had a good time, but I'm sure you're not going to want to be out with me again. Uh, even if you want to go out with me again, I don't want you to go out with me again. Because if you get to know me, you won't like me. You'll find out about my mistakes. You'll find out about my regrets. And in the scene, they're standing on the sidewalk and she darts off running for her apartment, just leaving him in the dust standing there. And Robin Williams just takes off running after her and she's grabbed the door to enter her apartment building. And before she enters, he's standing at the edge of the steps looking up at her and he says this to her, you don't understand. You don't understand. I've been watching you. I've been listening to you. I know you don't have any friends. I know you're kind of a klutz. I know you're incredibly awkward. I know all these things. And do you know what? Do you know what? I love you. I want you. And I will never leave you. You know, in the movie, that scene, she doesn't turn to him and say, You've been watching me? You, you creep. I'm calling the cops. No, no. She looks at him and she says, are you real? Are you real? She's transformed. She's overwhelmed. Why? She's overwhelmed because We are all born into the world looking for someone, looking for us. Do you know what? Robin Williams, as great as Robin Williams was, uh, as great as Robin Williams would be to do that for you, what will Jesus do for you? If a human being could possibly say, I know everything about you, which he didn't know everything about her. He, He knows she's clumsy. He knows she's awkward, but he doesn't know everything about her. He doesn't know all of her regrets and mistakes. And if he can say, I'll never leave you, no human being can actually say that. I'll never leave you. But Jesus, on the other hand, knows every stupid thing you've ever done. He knows all the things that weigh you down. He knows all the flaws that you've been carrying. He knows everything that you think about when you look in that mirror. He's seen them all. He's heard them all. He knows them all. And he shows up and he says, I've been watching you and I will never leave you. I love you. Through all the regrets that we cannot seem to forgive ourselves like Peter, Jesus is telling us, I see you. I know you. I've been watching you and I'll never leave you. That kind of grace and love will humble you. It will amaze you. It will, it will overwhelm you. It will transform you like this woman in the Fisher King. We will say like her, are you real? Are you real? 
How can you love me despite the failures I know so intimately in my life? How could you want to possibly be close to me after the mess that I have made of things? What we find is that the people with regrets are exactly the people like Peter Jesus has been looking for. We are all born into the world looking for someone who is looking for us. Dane Ortland uh, wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly. It's probably one of my top 10 favorite reads of all time. And this is what he said. Fallen anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. We are factories of fresh resistance to Christ's love. Even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as specific sins or failures, uh, we tend to retain a vague sense that given enough time, given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. But with Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach him. Nothing but coming to him is required. First at conversion and a thousand times thereafter until we are with him upon death. Friends, the grace we truly need to cover our regrets. Jesus has been standing ready to give, watching you, imploring you to know, no matter where you go, I will be with you and I will never leave you. He just simply invites us to come home. Nothing but coming to him is required. Will you join him? Let's pray. Our Father, this morning, would you remind us again? Because we need reminding. Remind us again that our regrets do not preclude us from coming to you. But they are the very prerequisites we need for coming. Remind us of your unbelievable one-way love for us. This overwhelming grace that you stand ready to give us just like Peter. Teach us this morning that all we need is nothing at all. That all we need is need. That you will not cast us out, but that you, Jesus, by your grace, see us and will never let us go. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen.